Well, it is such a joy to be worshiping with you this morning on the occasion of the installation of your new lead pastor. I invite you to have your Bible open to the passage Kyle read for us, Amos 7, 10 through 17. On the morning of September 27th, 2017, I received an email from you, Kyle, that read, Hey, Dr. McGarry, I'll be on campus next week for the Great Lakes District Conference. I'm wondering if you have any early morning classes on Tuesday that I can come and sit in the back and enjoy some great Hebrew teaching. With great delight, I responded that I did have an early morning Hebrew class and that I would love to have Kyle come to class. But I specified that he could not just sit in the back. There would be two conditions for his attendance. One, he would have to teach. Two, he would have to talk to the class about preaching because that's why we do Hebrew at Trinity. All he would need to do is lead the students through the Hebrew text of Psalm 33, verse 11, which we would be covering that day, and share with the class how he uses the Hebrew text in his own sermon preparation. Simple enough. Your response to my conditions was immediate and positive and robust. And you came to class that Tuesday morning and you engaged aspiring pastors and teachers in a careful analysis of Psalm 3311 and you talked to my students about how you as a TEDS graduate, once sitting where they were sitting, are now using your training in the biblical languages to open the word of God. Your presence and your presentation that morning, Kyle, had a unique and positive impact on the lives of those students that went way beyond anything I could do. All I can say is, best day ever. In her 1938 pamphlet, Dorothy Sayers wrote, if spiritual pastors are to refrain from saying anything that might ever, by any possibility, be misunderstood by anybody, they will end, as in fact many of them do, by never saying anything worth hearing. This particular brand of timidity, she writes, is the besetting sin of the good churchman. By that standard, the prophet Amos would not have been a good churchman. Amos was from the village of Tekoa in the southern Judean hill country, just about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Amos was a farmer, a sheep breeder. He was an agriculturalist who worked with sycamore figs. But one day, Amos heard the voice of the Lord. And he compares that experience to hearing the roaring of a lion, a roaring that causes 
pastures to dry up, a roaring that makes forests wither. Amos describes his call experience in chapter 3, verse 8, in terms of meeting a lion. He says, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Four uses of lion imagery in chapters 3 and 5, speaking of Israel's encounter with the Lord, make it clear that the day the lion roared was a defining moment for Amos. It's impossible to read this book and not hear the roaring in the background. But why is the lion roaring? Chapters 1 and 2 make it clear that judgment is coming. Seven times the Lord announces that he will send fire on the nations surrounding Israel for their wrongdoing, for their crimes against humanity. What is unexpected is that the most scathing accusation is directed against God's own people, against Israel. God's own people were selling the righteous for money. God's own people were exploiting the needy and the poor. God's people were turning aside the way of the humble and having embraced Canaanite religion, an Israelite man and his father were resorting to the same girl, the same Canaanite prostitute, God explains, in order to profane my holy name. They thought worship was about them. They're acting just like the nations all around them. And we begin to understand why the lion is roaring. Chapters 3 through 6 shift the focus from the nations to Israel. Three collections of sayings, all beginning with, Hear this word confront us with the ugly truth that was God's people in the middle of the 8th century. The chapters that immediately follow are dominated by five visions, the first four of which are given in chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8. Between the third and fourth vision, there is a brief but very interesting and vivid account of a confrontation between the prophet Amos and an otherwise unknown priest of Bethel named Amaziah. Our text for this morning is Amos 7, verses 10 through 17. Again, I would encourage you to follow along. Even though it seems that this little narrative interrupts the sequence of visions, this encounter between Amos and Amaziah is a vital part of the plumb line vision presented in verses 7 through 9. I have chosen this passage for this special occasion in the ministry of Pastor Kyle and in the life of Calvary Evangelical Free Church because these biographical verses provide us with important insight regarding what we are doing today. Insight about the nature and function of the one who is claimed by God for ministry. 
insight regarding the experiences one should expect to encounter and the resources upon which one can draw and the priorities and the perseverance which must characterize that ministry. Here's what happened. Look at your text. The Lord gave Amos a vision in verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, that's a plumb line. A plumb line is a cord that has a weight at one end. A plumb line is used by a builder to determine whether a vertical structure, a vertical wall, is truly vertical, completely aligned. The Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. In other words, time is up. The high places of Isaac will be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. <coughs> well, for Amaziah, high priest at Bethel, important government appointee, given the power to regulate and supervise everything that goes on at the royal chapel, given the responsibility to protect it from foreign and unfriendly ideologies that might otherwise undermine its state-approved religious thinking and activities, that was the last straw. No fig-picking, sheep-breeding, self-appointed, do-gooder, opportunist hick is going to come into the king's house with his plumb line and do anything. So Amaziah sent a letter to King Jeroboam accusing Amos of agitating the people to revolt against the king. But Amaziah was so upset he didn't even wait for a response. He decided to confront God's prophet Amos himself. The structure of these eight verses is simple and straightforward. It's always best to stay with the structure. Verses 10 through 13 focus on Amaziah and his words and his problem with Amos's words. And verses 14 through 17 focus on Amos and the Lord's words and their problem with Amaziah's words. The word of God for us this morning on this special installation day is this. Faithfulness to one's calling is the essential stewardship of ministry. Faithfulness to one's calling is the essential stewardship of ministry. It's important for you, Kyle, to remember that as you are installed today as lead pastor, it's important for you, Calvary, to re remember and embrace that as you actually witness and accept the installation of your new lead pastor. If you do not remain faithful to God's call on your life, if you do not remain faithful to God who has claimed your life for his service, then you have no ministry. Faithfulness to one's calling is the essential stewardship of ministry. And these verses will show us what that stewardship 
involves. I'm going to follow the simple structure of the passage so we will consider in the next few moments two principles that develop our main idea. We'll start with Amaziah's words about Amos. Our first principle is found in verses 10 through 13. Here we see that faithfulness to one's calling requires unrelenting allegiance to God rather than people. Faithfulness to one's calling requires unrelenting allegiance to God rather than to people. If you are a people pleaser, this will be a challenge. If you are not a people pleaser, this will still be a challenge because there is no service to God that comes without opposition. The words of Amaziah are interesting and revealing because they constitute an unintended tribute to the power and magnitude of Amos's God-given influence. At the end of verse 10, you'll notice Amaziah declares, the land is not able to bear his words. The opposition to Amos as he gave the word of the Lord manifested itself in a number of ways. Verses 10 and 11 make it clear that Amos was misrepresented. Amaziah <clears throat> presents Amos's message in such a way that a small collection of statements, some of them even true, give an entirely false impression of the man and his message and particularly his motives. Amaziah reports to the king, Amos has conspired against you. The verb that he uses here has clear connotations of organizing a group of people for purposes of rebellion and revolution, often involving an attempt on the life of the king. So Amos essentially is accused of conspiracy and treason. Amos's words are made to mean what in fact he never said, that Jeroboam would die in battle. And the concluding quotation of something that he did say is given as though it's final proof of the original contention of treason. Misrepresentation is a fact of life. And unfortunately, life in the church. Your primary responsibility, Kyle, before God is to declare the word of God. That word will not always be understood. That word will not always be accepted. And it will not always be appreciated. In verse 12, Amaziah targets Amos' motives. Amos is urged by Amaziah to act out of his own self-interest. Go, flee away for your own good, he says. The implication, of course, is that things could get ugly. Amaziah tells him to flee away to the land of Judah, implying that a message of judgment against the northern kingdom, Israel, would certainly play better, would certainly find a more receptive audience if it was delivered to the people living in the southern kingdom, Judah. So Amos is being urged to speak his message where it will be heard as distinct from where it needs to be heard. 
That is, where God commanded him to declare it. Amaziah tells him in verse 12, eat bread there. Amaziah takes it for granted or pretends to take it for granted that Amos is in this job for the money. And according to Amaziah, stipends are better in Judah. You'll have a better income, Amos. Think about it. You'll have a more regular income and you'll make a better living down in Judah. These subtle forms of opposition are always present, acting out of self-interest, seeking success for its own sake. These are distractions. They are alternate dead-end routes that will ultimately take you out of the ministry. These enticements had no effect on Amos because Amos knew who he was and he knew the one to whom he belonged. You are here, Kyle, at Calvary Evangelical Free Church because of God's call and claim on your life. So, you know what you need to know. You know who you are and you know the one to whom you belong. There will be times when you will be urged to compromise. That urging will come from those around you. It may come from those closest to you. And sometimes it will come from within yourself. And there may be scuffles with authority structures. Remember what the apostles, uh, their little uh, dust up in Acts 5.28 involved? What was said to them was, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What was the apostles' response in the next verse? We must obey God rather than man. Almost 700 years earlier, Amos had the same scuffle with authority. But these verses make it clear, faithfulness to one's calling requires unrelenting allegiance to God rather than people. <clears throat> well, the spotlight moves from Amaziah in verses 10 to 13 to Amos in verses 14 to 17, providing us with our second principle. Verses 14 through 17 show us that faithfulness to one's calling requires unwavering commitment to the word of God. Faithfulness to one's calling requires unwavering commitment to the word of God. Amos grounds his whole case on one fact. He is obeying the word of God. And he is fearless because he knows his authority is God-given. And he lays that out for Amaziah in verses 14 and 15. Amos even underscores this authority with a triple I statement in verse 14. You can see it in your text. Look at what he says. I'll tell you what I am not, and I'll state it twice so you'll get it. And I'll tell you what I am. Here's how the text reads, not a prophet am I, 
and not a son of a prophet am I, but a herdsman am I. Admittedly, the grammar is choppy, but compelling. Amos disavows Amaziah's underlying notion that his authority is in any way whatsoever self-generated. He was neither by nature nor by self-appointment a prophet. Nor did he have ambitions or plans that would have compelled him to pursue the life and ministry of a prophet. This was not an aspiration he had. His area of expertise was agriculture. He herded sheep. He grew sycamore figs. But he affirms at the beginning of verse 15, it was the Lord who took me. If you look closely at your text, you'll see that the threefold I of verse 14 is countered in verses 15 and 16 by a threefold reference to God's name. The Lord took me. The Lord said to me, so hear the word of the Lord. Amos was contentedly going about his daily routine when he heard the roar of the lion. An authoritative hand from outside gripped him and he became what he was not before. He became what he would never have made of himself. According to verses 14 and 15, the authority he has is the authority of, ident the authority of identification. It's the authority of vocation. It's the authority of revelation because he is in possession of a word from God. The Lord said to me, prophesy to my people Israel. The authority Amos has is the authority of commission. And the Lord said to me, go to my people Israel. Amos knew where he stood with God. And when the moment of testing came, and especially when a strong human authority pressed him to give up and just go away, he knew he was called by God. He knew he had a word from God to speak, and he knew he had a work from God to do. Faithfulness to one's calling requires unwavering commitment to the word of God. The second part of this section, verses 16 and 17, announce the judgment. Quoting the words of the accused, which is what he does here, the accusation he presents is quoting Amaziah himself. Quoting the words of the guilty is a favorite and effective technique of Amos. For being a fig-picking, sheep-breeding farmer, Amos knows a lot about preaching. It's impressive to hear this sheep-breeding, fig-picking farmer claimed by God for service declare in verse 16, now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Amaziah told him, verse 13, don't you ever prophesy again at Bethel. Amos replied, the Lord has a word for you. The announcement of judgment in verses 16 and 17 framed by the two therefores is total and terrifying. 
And the way he utters his proclamation could not be more emphatic. Amos confronts Amaziah with his own words in verse 16 before confronting him, indicting him with God's. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land will be devoured by a measuring line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely be taken away into exile. Amos, don't you know who you're talking to? That's Amaziah. He's important. He's very religious. He's chief of staff for the royal chapel. Have you forgotten where you are? This is Bethel, the king's sanctuary. Don't you know the history of this place? Don't you know whose house you're in? But Amos has heard the roar of the lion. Amos is simply doing what he said back in chapter 3, verse 8. The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The Lord of the plumb line has drawn near. And what God did to his people with the plumb line in verses 7 through 9, he has now done to these two men. They have been measured. One has been taken and one was left because one belonged to the king. And the other one belonged to God. Faithfulness to one's calling is the essential stewardship of ministry. What this text has shown us is vitally important for what God desires to accomplish under the ministry of Pastor Kyle and through Calvary Evangelical Free Church in 2022 and beyond. These eight verses have shown us that faithfulness to one's calling requires unrelenting allegiance to God rather than people. And we have seen that faithfulness to one's calling requires unwavering commitment to the word of God. This must be the foundation on which you build, Kyle. And Calvary family, you should expect nothing less. My brothers and sisters, your openness and attentiveness to the leading of God that has brought you to this day of installation. And Kyle, your obedient response to the claim and call of God on your life are the clear and compelling demonstrations of how God's leading should direct our lives. But that's just the beginning. There will be pressures the pressure to support the views of those who support you, the pressure to utter words that are pleasant and soothing when they should be jarring, the pressure for your sermons to be shaped by sentiments of the moment. These will test your calling and they will challenge your stewardship. That's why you must be unrelenting in your allegiance to God rather than people and unwavering in your commitment to the word of God. The Christian ministry is a sacred stewardship. 
Embrace that stewardship. Remember, Kyle, that you were first and foremost a servant of Christ. Remember that the key task of a steward is faithfulness to your master, to the one who called you. Remember, Calvary, you are the people of God. It's through your lives and your witness and the ministries of this church that God through Christ will exalt his name in this community and redeem men and women for his glory. You belong to God, Kyle. You belong to God, Calvary. Your absolute allegiance is to God. Keep the word of God central in your ministry, Kyle. Without the word, there is no sermon. Without the word, there is no message. May the Lord give you wisdom and boldness and strength and compassion for the work and service he has for you here at Calvary. My prayer is that your every word, your every action will glorify God and exalt Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.